So let's get a little bit to the content and look at it from a common person's perspective and not two theologically trained doctors' perspectives. Um, yeah. yeah, I think besides John three sixteen and Genesis one one, the Psalms are my earliest memories of reading Scripture. Um, but but you know what can you convey to us about what is the purpose and story behind its its compilation? Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter, so each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Edna Hill, your podcast host. This year we're celebrating our eighth year on the podcast, bringing you better interviews with your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online and share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF Podcast community through our CBF Podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We also want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters, including Caroline Bell, Cindy Folden-Lord, Trip Hawthorne, Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. Thanks for listening. Little Rock, Arkansas, Pittsburgh, PA, Ashburn, Virginia, West Yellowstone, Montana, Tamworth, Australia, and Hamilton, Canada. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. And before we move on, we need to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Zondervan Media Company, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, A Model Ministry, and Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity. Finally, and I promise this is it, don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity. The Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity aims to equip, nurture, encourage, and support men and women for their best service in the kingdom of God. Offering several programs, including master's and doctoral levels, you'll be equipped and encouraged to discover the unique place where your faith reaches out to meet the needs of the world. Now enrolling for fall of 2023, for more information about Gardner-Webb Divinity programs, scholarships, and grants, call 704 704- 406-3205 and visit gardner-web.edu. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Reverend Dr. Joshua James. Josh is a pastor of the Restoration Project in Salisbury, Maryland. He also teaches Old Testament. He's authored a new book that has already sold way more copies than his $136 dissertation on the ethics of the book of Psalms. Josh, welcome back to the conversation. First of all, you don't know that because you haven't seen the numbers on book sales. <laughs> None of us know that. It is probably highly likely, though, because the only living person that I know who has a copy of my first book, which is a revised edition of my dissertation, is my mother. Okay, so just <laughs> want to let the, let the record be known. But hello, Andy. Happy to be here. All right. Two things to go back to there. Number one. Uh, having conversations right now with book agents around uh, translating my dissertation into a popular press book. And the first question is, do you want this for an academic audience or do you want this for like a general audience? And I was like, well, I can tell you which one I don't want it for. And that's an academic audience because I don't want people to take one look at the price and say, no, I'm good. I'm totally good. 
<laughs> yes. When you when you're talking hardbacks, I I think you're right. I don't know if, how much research you did on this, but 130 some odd dollars sounds sounds reasonable. And <laughs> of that, when you're doing academic uh, publishing, you get nothing from that. You get zero dollars in return. Um, but you know, just to just to get it out there, if people are super interested by the end of our time together. You can get the storied ethics of the Thanksgiving Psalms for a cool $35 in paperback. Okay, so now, really? now we've come back to earth a little bit, I think. I only buy books that are uh, bound in leather covers. So um, you, you do this podcast, so you don't buy books. People just give no. you books. So you have, a, you have a good way in that the rest of us do not. Okay, so... <laughs> because we're friends and because no one else is listening right now, I will tell you that uh, if at any point a publicist or publisher requests that we have an author on, and then they say, you can purchase the book. It's like all of a sudden my schedule's filled up because nah, 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 I'm not buying <laughs> that book. You can send me that book. Yeah. But well, so we last, luckily for me, we did send you, you did send me and, and mind you, I have very coveted spaces on my bookshelf that you can see, but our audience can't see right now. And I have like kind of a general podcast space. And then I have spaces dedicated to the, the particular genre of the book. And you have fit into the very coveted uh, biblical insight and commentary section of my bookshelf that very few people have made it on. There you go. So if you ever find yourself back in the pastorate or preaching through Psalms, you might want to reference Psalms for normal people. Yeah. All right. So we last had you on when this thing was actually branded as the CBF Church Starting Podcast. So it's been a few years, uh, like seven years. Long. I was thinking about that the other day because I remember how ridiculous that episode was. It was like two kids giggling into microphones about nonsense. <laughs> uh, so well done to you Andy you've taken the podcast in a different more serious uh direction and you have had all sorts of well-known guests on uh so now this feels like a real a real honor to be here talking with you all right so for our audience uh some things they should know about you you are now um an ultra marathon runner Oh, we're going here. This yeah. is so great because I get to talk about it. Um, so, I, like, so you and I were texting the day after I, I ran my last marathon, and you're like, "That's great! Congratulations! You ought to join me in doing an even greater distance." <laughs> uh, I don't think that's true. I was trying to get us to do something collaboratively together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know if it was. Um, it wasn't COVID, and it wasn't actually. So, my my full time job is as a as a pastor. And, and I don't think it was, you know, the demands of the pastor that led me to want to spend hours and hours by myself on a trail running around that got me here. It's actually, my wife is a physical therapist and she's kind of carved out this niche for herself where she works with distance athletes, ultra marathoners, triathletes, um, and within our geographical context, there's quite a quite a number of them here. So I met a guy a while back that had done a hundred mile race and I was like, oh my gosh, that sounds insane. But then it just like lodged in my brain and I was like, I wanna do that. 
So I've been running for the last couple of years and training and uh, about three weeks ago, I did my first hundred mile event and it was awesome. It took me 26 hours. And I can honestly say that there was not one minute of that run that I hated myself or hated my body or hated the weather. I mean, I just thoroughly enjoyed every moment being out there running around at a pretty slow pace for all of that time. So I'm hooked. I'm into it. So I mean, like, what's the average pace of something like that? Like pace per mile? It uh, So for me, it was 15 and a half ish, I think, if I'm remembering. Okay. Correctly. So you're not like crushing it. Like, no, no, no. You're not doing no. like a six to eight minute mile. Oh gosh, no. But there was one guy there that was doing about an eight minute average. So he finished in 14 hours. And it was one of these like kind of out and back. So we would pass him numerous times. And every time we saw him, he would just be cruising. Yeah. There was people in the last marathon I ran that there was, you know, that you have those turning points and those people are ahead of you and you'd see those people that are ahead of you. And you're like, really? That person's ahead of me. And then yes. you're trying to will your body to go faster. And your body's like, now we're good with this, this space, this space. So, so uh, not to not to bore our audience with our, our our dorkiness of long distance running, but we also talk about uh, pastor of the restoration project. Uh, gosh, this this church plan has been around for for quite a while, and y'all have seen some some pretty radical changes in that time. Yeah, uh, we started back in 2013. Um, this and this is sort of the intersection of how I came to know about the cooperative. Baptist Fellowship and one Andy Hale. So we had actually started the church in January of 2013. So we just turned 10 uh, this winter. But I don't think it was until like 2014, 2015 that someone said, hey, there's this group of people that exist called Cooperative Baptist. At the time, we were non-denominational. We didn't have any sort of accountability or fellowship or um, help. And we just felt lonely. Uh, we were surrounded by other Southern Baptist churches. We didn't fit uh, within that stream of things. And so I got I got hooked up with David King, who was leading the church starting group back then. Our co-pastor at the time then went through that same cohort with, with you, Andy. Um, so I will go on record, as I am right now speaking into a microphone for this podcast, CBF has been a godsend for us. Um, it's provided us with family, with um, people that we know are in our corner and have been there with us as we have navigated really big changes within our local community context. Like we're not the same church now in 2023 that we were back in 2013. Um, and in some ways that has cost us a lot, but we have had a really good uh, region that we have leaned on the mid-Atlantic region of CBF has been with us and helping us and providing us with other pastors to talk to and folks that we can sort of, you know, I hate this phrase, but do life with. And that's been, that's been very, very meaningful for us. Yeah. And maybe it kind of be the last thing we can go to there, which is more of an, an affirmation of, of you and the church than maybe necessarily a, a talking point for you that, you know, for many years, y'all were 
you wouldn't call yourself this, but you were an attractional model church. You had people coming to you all because of what you were doing and the type of space you were creating. And it led to some pretty substantial results, you know, uh, the number of people that were participating in it. And then um, you and, and, and your leaders had a, a sense of conviction um, around, you know, affirming the humanity and gender and sexuality of all people. And, you know, from an outside looking in, it, it cost you all big time. And, you know, I, I think many people in your place would have called it quits or um, maybe even caved a little bit on your ethics, but y'all chose to stay the course. And of course, it changed radically who you are. You know, so I wonder, looking back at, at that kind of, what does that taught you, taught you about the church, about ministry, about pastoring? We could do a whole episode on that alone. Yeah, I mean, the the easy answer is it's really hard, um, and it it hurts at times when you think about it external. So, like you know, we've had people on the inside that have left, and that's always difficult. We've had people on the outside looking in, saying things that are hurtful and maybe even untrue about me and others, specifically that my wife has to hear and see, specifically that our church members have to see and hear. Um, so it's, it's always like that, you know, you've got church members that have a, a large Thanksgiving meal and their family goes to different churches and they start to say, well, where do you go? And then they say, and then it's like, oh, and they kind of give you the, the weird eyes because of all the stuff that they've heard about it. But I wouldn't change. Well, I, I was I was about to say I wouldn't change one thing, and that's not true. I would I would change a lot of things, but I, I would not change that core conviction of we're going to be the most honest and authentic um, group of people that we can, and I'm going to be the most honest and authentic pastor that I can. So some of my most beautiful ministry moments have been saying to, to people in the seats, to members and regular attenders, like, hey, I'm having all these conversations in coffee shops with people, and I'm saying these things in one-on-one -on -one scenarios that I haven't really preached about, so I just want to say that out loud so that we're all on the same page. And I would go into those conversations with a little bit of hesitancy and fear of what folks might say or how they might respond, because for any minister, you know that people leave and it and it hurts and you don't want to encourage that or have to go through that but on the back end of those meetings i would i personally would feel so affirmed by the community that we have that we have gathered and now we're at this point where we're really small um for reference i would guess that there's probably about 30 maybe 35 people that make up the restoration project um and that group, I, I can't even stress how much life they they give to me. And I can't even stress how rare I know it is to be able to think about a community and not have one even ill thought. You know, it's like I don't have any problemed people. I, I've got like this this community that is just they love one another and they love me and I, I feel such freedom there. So having gone through all the stuff to get to that point, I, I feel really, um, I feel good about that. 
it's been it's been a meaningful ride and I hope that it continues. Although there have been moments, Andy, I should say this, where, oh, I have wanted to quit. I have wanted to walk away in the most palpable of ways because it's so hard, especially towards the back end of COVID, you know, getting into 21, 22, like it just was, I was so done. And I do think that's sort of where the trail running has been really therapeutic for me. I've had more God moments on the trails by myself, um, just running around than I have in a, in a sanctuary over the last three years, but man, it's been, it's been tough. And it just depends on what day you catch me. But today I'm in a really thankful day and I'm I'm super excited about our community and, and what we've been through and who we're advocating for. And um, we have not seen that really bear fruit in our weekly attendance or our weekly giving or things like that. But the fruit that it has borne has been incalculable. We can't go any further without telling about one of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. How does your congregation handle ministry staff leadership for areas such as youth and children's ministry? More and more churches are cultivating these leaders from within their congregations. Going away to seminary is not an option for these persons, yet many desire some level of theological education to better prepare them for their ministry role. In response to this trend, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has launched the Homegrown Initiative. The Homegrown Initiative offers ministry leaders options for training and growth that fits into their busy schedules. If you or someone else at your church is serving as a homegrown minister and is looking to be better equipped as a minister, visit bsk.edu to learn more about new creative options for growth. bsk.edu. That's bsk.edu. Now let's switch gears. You've got a new book, Psalms for Normal People. This guides people through the theological complexities of a 150-chapter book of the Bible. You wrote, whatever has brought brought you to this point where I imagine you sitting in a favorite coffee shop, an armchair, flavored oat milk latte and fancy fountain pen in hand, reading a book about the Hebrew Bible's preeminent collection of ancient Israel's theologically infused songs and prayers. I'm glad you're here. Why Psalms? Uh, Why do you love this book so much? Why did you dedicate a dissertation and, and now your first popular press book to it? Okay, this this is where I was just talking about being honest and authentic. I don't like Psalms. I don't read them like devotionally. I don't wake up and think, you know, what will really help me today is is a Psalm. <laughs> Here's the real answer. And Andy, you can you can get on board with this having just finished your doctoral uh, thesis. There's a lot of pressure doing a PhD to make a contribution to scholarship. And when I was in my PhD coursework, I read an article by a guy named Gordon Wenham, uh, who's an Old Testament scholar. He was writing on Psalms, and he was specifically writing on the ethics of the Psalms. And he said, this is, quote, veritable virgin scholarly territory. And I thought, oh, something that people aren't writing a lot about, maybe I could find a lane there. And my uh, doctoral supervisor is John Goldengay, who is a really well-known scholar, but one of his main things is uh, the book of Psalms. Although the man is cranking out commentaries at a ridiculous pace. I think he's written one on nearly uh, every 
well, he has written one on every book of the Old Testament. It's a, it's a popular series called uh, The Old Testament for Everyone, I believe is what that's called. But then he's got a lot of more academic stuff. He's, he's written a ton of stuff. But I figured, so there's Gordon Wenham saying, this is, this is a place where scholars can make contributions. And I got Dr. Golden Gay, who's you know, really into the world of the Psalms. So I could kind of bring those two things together. And now I will say I have found them to be very interesting theologically, ethically, um, but I don't, I, I don't, I'm not the type of person who is going to wake up at five in the morning and, and read a Psalm a day. Those people exist and I have them in mind when I'm writing because the sort of things that I'm after are much more nerdy. Uh, like historical context, the the very strange theological points that Psalms is making. I want to add more layers and textures to, um, you know, someone like my mom who does wake up every day early to read her Bible and, you know, she appreciates Psalms and has used Psalms. And for any churched person, you know, there's a lot of nostalgia surrounding Psalms. Sometimes we have these these meanings that we think can be attributed to them, but they're really more about us and our experiences. Um, like an easy example there is Psalm 23. We usually hear Psalm 23 in a funeral. That text has absolutely nothing to do with the afterlife or you know, bringing any sort of peace to someone about the whereabouts of their deceased loved one. It's more about how we live here and now. Um, so adding... Uh, you know, more layers and, and context and texture to a book that people really do truly love and benefit from is what I'm attempting to do. And I say that sort of as an outsider who doesn't engage Psalms a whole lot myself. How does that, how does that land with you, Andy? Does that sound, does that sound warm and fuzzy and great? I just, I just love the idea. You're like, oh, nobody's writing on this. Let me write on this thing. Because no one else is doing it. Let's be honest. The word that captured you was the word virgin territory. No, no. Or the phrase virgin territory. So I mean, yeah, I wish there was a more, you know, romantic idea. Like I, I went to school with someone who, as soon as she showed up, she's like, I love Song of Songs. And for two years of coursework, it's all she wrote about. And then her dissertation was, that's what it was. And then post-graduation, like she's written a bunch on the Song of Songs. And I'm like, man, that would be really cool. Or this other guy I went to school with, like really into Paul. And like, that was his whole track. Meanwhile, I'm over here thinking, well, I could write a dissertation on Josephus. I could write a dissertation on Gerhard von Rott. I could write a dissertation. I mean, whatever I was looking at at the time, I got really into it and thought, maybe I could do this. And Psalms was just one of the ones near the end of my coursework where it's like, I really got to start writing something so I can finish. And that's what led me here. <laughs> so uh, doing a dissertation on Psalms, publishing that as a book. Um, here's, here's a little bit more backstory. I know Pete and Jared because of my seminary experience. I got my master's degree at Westminster Seminary where Pete Enns was, was teaching um, Pete and Jared are the the main faces of and the creators of the Bible for normal people, which is where Psalms for Normal People uh, it has been published by them. 
So at one point, I just reached out to Jared, who was a classmate of mine, and said, hey, you guys are publishing these really great books, Genesis for Normal People, Exodus. I believe Jonah was was close to, to being printed at the time. And said, I would love to do something like this because I'm a minister and, you know, I'm trying to make scholarship available to people in the seats, like normal people, so to speak. And I'm wondering if there's any room for, for more books here. And Jared responded and said, yeah, what are you interested in? And I'm interested in all sorts of things. But I thought the easiest book for me to crank out would be one on Psalms because I have been with it for a decade now, um, which I should also mention is part of the reason why I'm a little reticent to read it devotionally because when you when you spend so much time with something um like there's a there's seasons where it's like oh my dissertation is really fun and really good and then there's seasons when you're writing it where like i hate this i hate everything about it and i hate the book that i'm writing it on and i don't want to think about this ever again but i guess i was in a moment where it's like well i could crank something out like this so i just said well you know i've done a lot of work on psalms and i i could do that and he was like okay go for it so that's how psalms for normal people was born well that just knocks out the second question which was how you got connected with those two wonderful people and friends of the program I, you know i was worried when i got a copy of this book that the josh james that everyone knows and loves would be hidden away you know only appearing in name on the author blurb on the back of the book, but but the tone of this book is you. Why was it important for the nature and style of this book to be able to be, um, you know, written with your voice and tone? And 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 then maybe how would you define your voice and tone? Oh, I think you'd be better off helping people define my voice and tone. Um, it's important for me. I mean, honestly, I wanted people to read the book uh so i wanted to steer clear of like like you said academic publishing just doesn't really appeal to me i'm not the type who's gonna use my phd to write a 15 page journal article that only one person or two people or five people are going to read because they happen to be writing an exegetical paper on the the three or four verses that i've devoted months of my life to like that just doesn't seem appealing to me Instead, I want to be able to do what I do from the pulpit each week, which is engage conversations around the ancient Near Eastern uh, background of Old Testament text or first century Jewish context of New Testament text. Like I want to be able to bring whatever I have gained from my educational experience to bear uh, for, for, for lack of a better term, for normal people. Uh, you know, like folks like my mom, folks like uh, my my congregants, folks that that don't want to wade through all of the academic stuff and have to read a bunch of transliterated Hebrew words. They just want to hear what what what's going on. And along the way, I think it just helps the book to be more readable and much more fun when it can maybe have some humor or be a little sarcastic. Um, I think my tone would probably be like, I'm, I'm pretty dry. I'm pretty analytical. I'm pretty sarcastic. Uh, but I try to be funny. And I think a lot of those different things come into the book. So you, you, it will not shortchange you on nerdiness and biblical scholarship. But I do want it to be 
more fun and also more personal. So there's a lot of stuff, especially in the second half of the book. So the way that it, it works out is in the first half of the book, I do a lot of seminary type stuff, background information. Uh, it's The technical term is special introduction. So um, who's writing these Psalms? Why were they written? What is their genre? How has this collection of 150 Psalms been put together? Like all of that sort of stuff is the first half of the book. And then the second half of the book is looking at the theology of certain Psalms. And I want to be clear here because this is one of the themes in the book. I think we should read each Psalm individually and expect to see its own culturally embedded theological snapshot within one Psalm, as opposed to saying the theology of Psalms at a larger level is X, Y, and Z. I'd rather say the theology of Psalm 82 or Psalm 23 or whatever, because a lot of times they're they're at odds with one another. Um, they're written over such a span of time that you might have one theological idea that is in seminal form here, and then it kind of gets larger and develops over time. So I just want to look at each Psalm uh, on its own as as we're, we're exploring. But in that second half of the book, I I do get a lot more personal. I talk about about me and my experiences. Um, so you know, trying to be open, authentic, humorous, dry, sarcastic, witty, those sorts of things. Um, hopefully, that comes through in in the reading of of the book. I tried really hard to get it out there. So let's get a little bit to the content and look at it from a common person's perspective and not too theologically trained doctors perspectives um yeah. yeah i think besides john 316 and genesis 1 1 the psalms are my earliest memories of reading scripture um but but you know what can you convey to us about what is the purpose and story behind its its compilation so the compilation is super interesting because, and I don't think many people know this, usually because when we approach Psalms, we approach Psalms as uh, the analogy that I use in the book is like uh, an old CD compilation of greatest hits. Like you can skip around, you don't have to listen to them from start to finish, um, especially if you're dealing with something like, now that's what I call music. It's just a bunch of the year's top hits put on one disc. A more uh, updated version of that would be a, a playlist. Um, they're not always put together with intentionality. A good one is, but sometimes you just take whatever you like and you just throw them into a, a shared file. So you can skip around and you can listen to individual tracks. And usually when we approach Psalms, we listen to individual tracks and don't think about how that Psalm relates to the one that comes before it or the one that comes after it. Nor do we see any sort of um, intentionality in the structuring of the book, nor do we even see the fact that Psalms is uh, organized into five books within the Psalter. Right. So unless you're reading through the book in your Bible or even on your um, you know, Bible app, unless you're at one of those theme psalms that begins one of the books, you're not going to see the label at the top that says book one or book two. So you might not even know that there's been intentionality in framing the, the entire collection into five smaller books. 
for anyone who's, you know, thinking about the Old Testament, it's important for us to realize there that the number five has some significance because the editors are wanting you to think of Psalms as, I, I don't want to say comparable to the Pentateuch, but at least there's there's an association between Psalms and its five books and the five books of Moses, who, side note, did not write any of the Pentateuch, but we have the five books of Moses or the law, the, the, the Torah. So it's wanting us to see Psalms in a similar frame as another book that is meant to teach. Um, you know, in Hebrew, Torah does not just mean law, it means teaching or instruction. And when you think about those first five books, it's not just a collection of laws, it's a it's a story, but it's all story that is meant to instruct or teach or form the ancient Israelite. And Psalms, the editors are saying, read this collection in such a way that it too will shape you and form you and mold you, and you'll receive some instruction from it. Now, you can even get a little bit farther into that, where some folks uh, back in the early 80s began to think about psalms not as a haphazardly collected group but as a larger collection that should be read as a, a book or as a compilation or as a as a playlist where each song so to speak has been ordered with intentionality to move you and to guide you and to make you feel certain things so some folks back then began to look at why at a micro level, why Psalm 23 is next to Psalm 22 and Psalm 24. Like at that level, and I don't want to go there because that gets, that bogs us down big time. Um, but a little bit farther above that, they would say, is Psalms telling us a story? And they began to see like books one through three as sort of rehashing um the the davidic kingdom from the time when david was on the throne to the eventual splitting of the kingdom and the eventual um exile of the people like it's telling this story by the psalms that are included and then it turns into book four and book five as uh, bringing people back from exile and uh exhorting Yahweh as king again. So some people would even want to say like at a larger level, the book itself is attempting to tell a narrative from the time that David was on the throne to the time that the kingdom was divided to the time that Israel was destroyed by Assyria and Judah was destroyed by Babylon to the time when the exiles come back into the land. Uh, and, and it's just kind of painting this picture. So it, it ends with this crescendo of praise to Yahweh and what Yahweh has done, and it, it's telling a story, so to speak. We are pausing to tell you about one of our collaborative annual sponsors, A Model Ministry. Are you a church leader who's committed to keeping children safe? If so, then A Model Ministry is for you. We are a registered nonprofit organization specializing in safety education, policy writing, and risk assessment to mitigate child abuse in ministry organizations. We understand that child safety is a top priority for churches, and we're here to create a safe and nurturing environment for all children. Our founders can provide the resources and support needed to implement effective child safety policies and procedures. 
Visit amodelministry.com to learn more about our services and how we can help keep children safe. Since 2016, CBF has brought you episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. One of my favorite aspects of, of the book is how you um, wrote on the theological ambiguity of Psalms. You wrote ambiguity in the Psalms is a good thing and that it allows 2,500-ish year old collection of poems to remain useful to modern readers. This isn't just good news for us. The content of Psalms has always been ambiguous um, ambiguous, excuse me, and that has always been good news. What do you mean by this? And why do you think ambiguity is an important part of our biblical and theological perspective? So this gets into what Psalms were attempting to do. And it's a little bit uncertain because whenever you start talking about the function of Psalms, you're dealing with very specific historical reconstructions about um, ancient Israel's worship that honestly we just don't really have. But most scholars are um, fine saying that originally Psalms were used for corporate and communal worship. So it's it's less of a devotional book that people are, you know, reading at five o'clock in the morning when they wake up to be inspired for their day. Like all of that is is complete misnomer for that time period. And that's not to say that individuals didn't find relevance and meaning in the Psalms that were being read to them or performed for them or sung to them in, in a, you know, worship setting. But it is to say that Psalms were probably written for use in a more corporate setting. So it's important that they're a little bit ambiguous because if the prayers or the songs get way too specific, they will lose their uh, relevance for people within that setting. Uh, so I, I kind of go off a bit and talk about, you know, a, a worship leader in a modern setting who is getting a little bit too specific about their own life and problems. And in their prayers, they're asking for forgiveness for very specific things that make the congregants pretty uncomfortable. And when they do that, it, it makes people not be able to join into the prayer. Because there's a big difference between saying, um, leading folks in a prayer that might be asking for confession or making confession and then confessing very specific things. So it's important that Psalms, which are also attempting to be used theoretically in a corporate communal worship setting, that it doesn't get too specific in, you know, continue with this example, the sins that are uh, being confessed, because then it would not allow people to 
bring in their own experiences and their own confessions. And if we can stay at something that's more ambiguous than anybody who's reading the Psalms or singing the Psalms or praying the Psalms can fully engage and bring their own experiences to bear because there's room for them to explore that uh, while thinking about that Psalm. That makes sense. Yeah. One of the things I appreciate most about the Psalms is they're all over the map when it comes to emotions and general feelings towards God. Um, there is praise and tumult, lament and concern, frustration and acceptance. Talk to us about the various expressions in the Psalms and how that might inform our capacity for feeling our deep feelings, especially towards God. Yeah, so that somebody asked me here recently, like what my biggest takeaway from from the book and from, um, I guess, I think at a larger level, like just my engagement with Psalms over the last decade um, decade plus. And it's that very idea because I I'm super churched, right? I, I grew up in church. I went to private Christian school. I went straight from there to Bible college. I went straight from there to seminary. Like it was, it's a very bubbleized Christian setting. And for me, most of my experience was praise over lament, meaning when I'm in a corporate worship setting, there was very little lament in, in my experience. And I understand that, that is, uh, that's not universal. Some faith communities truly understand lament, and it is a really important part of their communal congregational worship. It wasn't for me, though. I, I was a part of uh, you know groups that were more, if you're dealing with something, put a smile on your face and go in because you should be happy that you know Jesus or however they wanted to, to quantify that. Same thing with like a, a music set. It was not, there were no dirges being played. Uh, there were no lament songs being sung. It was, you know, God is good all the time. Let's put a happy face on and sing about it. And that's not, that's just not Psalms at all. Uh, the most represented genre it, are the lament Psalms which do not lack words of protest, of conviction, of emotional uh, rawness. Like they are very open and honest in their feelings towards, towards Yahweh. And like my first exposure to that was, oh man, that's not what I was given, but I wish it was because there's moments in my life as an individual, where lament would be good language for me to have. And there's moments in my life looking around at larger social movements and, um, you know, the things that we see on, on our news feeds, where lament is the most appropriate language that we can offer, as opposed to, oh, just smile and pretend to have faith and pretend that everything's okay and sing these really upbeat songs. Meanwhile, a mass shooting just happened less than 24 hours ago. And here we are, and we're just singing these happy songs as if nothing's happened. So for me, it was like this cognitive dissonance sort of began to dissipate because I didn't have to do that anymore or I wasn't expected to do that anymore. Instead, the Psalms are making room for lament 
And even beyond that, they're making room for us to be really freaking angry at, at God. So my favorite Psalm, and this you won't see crocheted on a pillow, is Psalm 88. Psalm 88 is a lament Psalm. And nine times out of 10, I talk about this in the first half, the nerdy half of the book. Uh, nine times out of 10, a lament Psalm has a specific formula to it. Namely, once you get past the yelling at God and saying what the problem is and, and what's going on and, and demanding that God do something, once you get past all that, there's usually a turn to trust. And the psalmist will say something to the effect of, yet I will trust you. And they could have just like absolutely laid out their case as to why their life is terrible. And then to tack on the, yet I will trust you, always rang hollow to me. It felt like my, my experience, like, well, we don't want to say these things or we don't want to, you know, actually be angry with God because God's good. So you need to get to the trusting part. Psalm 88, however, ends with the line, darkness is my closest friend, is a good translation of that last line. And then it's over. Like, there's no turn to trust. It's just, you know, the psalmist being completely open and authentic with where they are and what's going on and how everything's miserable. And then they just conclude, darkness is my closest friend, period. Amen. Have a great day. Go in peace. Like, there's no, there's no... I'll say there's no fake turn to trust because that person might not feel that or might not want to go there. And to have that in our, in our, let's say canonical prayer book was so liberating for me because it allowed me to express things to God that I didn't maybe feel allowance to prior. Um, you know, so crazy things can happen in our communities, in our country, globally, and we don't have to feel pressure to always say, yet I will trust you. Sometimes you can pause and just hang out with darkness as my closest friend and know that that is a God-honored, community-accepted prayer. And that's really powerful. So to, to provide language for, you know, even within... Um, my specific local community to provide language for people to realize they don't have to rush their grief. They don't have to rush their process. They don't have to rush to a fake confession of trust when they don't feel that way has been really, really liberating. This next question really fits really closely with the last question was, which is uh, let's talk about sea monsters. Um, uh, you wrote in the ancient world, sea monsters were mythical creatures that function as forces of chaos, as agents of fear and disorder. They lived in dangerous waters of the deep, and they were, in a word, a problem. Um, I don't remember thumbing through uh, 150 chapters of the psalm and, you know, of course, memorizing every single one of them, ever coming across a, a sea monster. So take us a little deeper there. Yeah, so... You've got a psalm like Psalm 104, and I, I also don't have this memorized. I just happen to have a few notes here before me. So I, I you know, just to just to be fully transparent, I don't want people thinking I'm super spiritual. That's um, that's another part of the problem in saying like, oh, I've written a book on psalms. They expect you to know everything about all 150 of them, and that is just not true. That's a big book. Okay, that would take a long time. Anyway, Psalm 104 
has has this line at the end here. It says, "O oh Lord, how manifold are your works! In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Yonder is the sea, great and wide. Creeping things innumerable are there." And you can you can begin to hear some resonances from Genesis one because the only other time you've heard about creeping things is in Genesis one in the creation story. There, okay, goes on to say, "Living things, both great." And small, there go the ships and, quote, Leviathan that you formed to sport in it. Um, so here you've got the psalmist that's appealing to Genesis 1 sort of language. And I don't want to get into literary dependence. I, I do want to acknowledge it. But whenever you're trying to say, oh, this psalmist is clearly utilizing Genesis 1 language as if they're reading and then taking it. I don't know if that's necessarily the best way to go. Let's just talk about ideas that are permeating the context of the ancient Near East. And one of those ideas that's permeating the context is the, the sea is, is bad and scary, and it's filled with chaos. And there's like, um, you know, potential threatening monsters that live there. Even in Genesis 1 language, um, it talks about God creating. Sea monsters is the best translation that we have uh, for, for what's being described. Yet when we hear sea monsters, we usually don't go mythical. We go to sharks and maybe whales and other things, barracuda, stuff that could cause us harm. Jellyfish. I live near the ocean, so jellyfish are like my nemesis. You want to stay away from the jellyfish to avoid being stung. In the ancient world, though, that idea of sea monsters or even dragons, the NRSV uh, translates it at times, it wants you to go mythical because the ideas that are permeating the air there are the deep uh, is scary, and that's where the monsters are, and that's where chaos is. But in Genesis 1 and in Psalm 104, the idea is that God is creating the sea monsters, let's just say dragons, uh, the Loch Ness monster type things. Here it names them as Leviathan. It fits the same category there, these mythical sea creatures. And the point is that that God made Leviathan or the sea monsters as a plaything. There's no threat whatsoever because God is creating these things, remember, as good, right, in Genesis 1 language, in Psalm 104, creating these things as playthings, as pets as things that do not cause any sort of consternation or fear because God is over all. And when we come to the Bible, we usually don't read it well attuned to, you know, the theologies of the ancient Near East. And sometimes we miss out on the really beautiful and impactful claims that psalmists or other, um, you know, Old Testament authors are making. The one here is, you know, we can praise God. This is something that can lead to, uh, John Levinson would say, it leads to doxology. Because God is one who tames the chaos 
who has made these mythical creatures as and 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 plays with them they're his pets and therefore we can sort of live knowing that god has tamed chaos and will tame chaos again if need be so you're absolutely right that a lot of times we don't see that language and there's a, a couple of reasons one is uh English Bible translators are a bit reticent to state them overtly because that would maybe raise some red flags for folks. There's still some people that want to talk about Leviathan as a dinosaur, I think, of some form or fashion or crocodile. I don't know. They kind of like start uh, guessing on what it might be, but that really misses the point. These are mythical sea creatures that God uh, is is taming and playing with them, and that's sort of the the thing. And since we don't know that background, we miss on the real depth of uh, the theological claims that the Psalms are making, which is why I wanted to you know, write this book and let people kind of peek behind the curtain and see things uh, that were true about the historical context and hopefully have their, their theology broadened and expanded by going back a little bit to see what an ancient reader might see or experience or hear or think or feel and how that is important. I'll add this too. Um, because there's, there's another Psalm, Psalm 74, where things get a bit more dicey. So in Psalm 104, there's on the, theoretically, there's no problems that are happening. You've got Leviathan, these sea creatures, these sea monsters, dragons, whatever you want to call them that God has made just to play with their pets. But there's moments specifically when Babylon comes into town and demolishes Jerusalem and the temple and causes people to go into exile, where for a normal, you know, Torah observant Israelite, they would say, well, it doesn't seem like chaos has been tamed too well. It's invading. So in Psalm 74, you've got a different picture that's being painted but it uses the same images so it talks about god being the king from of old god is working salvation in the earth god divided the sea by god's might and broke the heads of the dragons in the water that's a, a broader sea monster term and then it goes on to say god crushed the heads of leviathan you gave leviathan as food for the creatures of the wilderness so here it's it's going beyond like this peaceful non-violent leviathan is a plaything sort of image to there's been moments when chaos breaks in and god has to um you know go to work and in the ancient world like be violent and tame chaos in a way that is more demanding than um, just sort of overseeing the taming of chaos as we get in the nonviolent depiction of Genesis 1 and Psalm 104. In Psalm 74, in the shadow of the Babylonian exile, the people are calling God to go to work. And it's the same sort of thing, like you did this back then. You've done a lot of these things back then. Do it again, do it now. So when we understand that ancient Near Eastern context, I think it really sort of um, expands our understanding of A, what the psalmist is saying, and B, what we might be able to, to pray and how we might be able to pray and what this might be 
um, what this might mean for us here and now. I know you have probably been asked this and in light of some of your answers, I'm, I'm hesitant to ask this, but um, what's your favorite Psalm? <laughs> and, and the follow-up question is going to be, uh, which Psalm do you struggle with the most? Um, I, I struck, uh, this, this says a lot about me. I said earlier that Psalm 88, um, has been for some time, like my, my favorite Psalm. And I think that still stands. Like, I just, I love that ending and, and not rushing people to, to affirmations of trust. I don't always want Psalm 88 to be my favorite Psalm though. Um, and I don't always want, you know, the, the back half of that is what Psalms do I struggle with? It's the happy ones, uh, the ones with, with closure and the ones where everybody is kind of, God is great and life is good and everything's, you know, as it should be. I want, I want that to switch at some point where it's like, I enjoy the ones where life is good and uh, things are working as they should be. And I can praise God for who God is and and then have that darkness as my closest friend be more in the back of my mind. And I think that's actually the point of Psalms is for us to go through these cycles where the, the praise Psalms are meaningful and then something happens and then the lament Psalms become really meaningful. And then we're led out of lament and the thanksgiving psalms are really meaningful and we can get back to praise but then something offsets and we get back to lament so it's like a lot of scholars have talked about the cycle of psalms and i think that's really indicative of how it should be i just happen to be in a holding pattern of where the lament psalms are really meaningful for me right now and the praise psalms maybe less so but i'd love to keep moving on that cycle where i can get to say a thanksgiving psalm or a praise psalm again and really, and really feel like it's not me just putting on airs or me convincing myself that this is where I am, but this is actually where I am, where I can, where I can dig deep and pull out a praise psalm and mean it. I'm just not there today. Um, and I still, I don't know if this is, you know, inappropriate, but I'm, I just in, in the, you know, it's not the Babylonian exile, but for me at least, a large shadow has been cast by COVID and by social unrest and by the American political situations and by the 24-hour news cycle where I just feel this perpetual need for lament, but I'm hopeful that I don't stay there forever. And I'm hopeful that I'm not leading my congregants to feel stuck in lament as well. Our guest is Josh James. The book is Psalms for Normal People. Uh, Josh, you're one of my favorite people in the world. So uh, I guess thanks for that. And uh, thank you for inspiring others to revisit these ancient poems for our formation. If that's not a good sales pitch for the book, I don't know what is. If you'd like to read one of Andy Hale's favorite people's <laughs> books, here's your opportunity. <laughs> Thank you, Andy. It's always a pleasure to hang out with you when a microphone is on or when we're just sitting around a table. So thanks. 
This is worth putting off the podcast interview for 30 more seconds to hear about one of our annual sponsors, Zondervan Media Group. Explore the depth and beauty of scripture with the NRSV updated edition. With provisions based on new contextual evidence, historical insights, and linguistic precision, this updated edition of the NRSV delivers a translation of scripture based on meticulous care for accuracy and readability. Learn more about new editions of the NRSV UE from Zondervan at nrsvuebible.com. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity, a model ministry, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, and Zondervan Media Company. Check out more at cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and more. And I'm not sure if we mentioned that you should join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.